0: Thank you for listening to Tapping Into The Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Tapping Into the Human. I am lucky enough to be joined by Maya Slavitz, a world-renowned author and reporter on addiction, public policy, and science. Maya's most recent book, Undoing Drugs, An Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction, was actually my nonprofit's book club last month. And we were lucky enough to be joined by Maya herself. uh, And she was kind enough to answer a bunch of questions. So Maya, thank you so much for being here and for being a part of the book club recently.
1: Oh, sure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of who you are and what sort of brought you
1: into the addiction space? Sure. So, um, in my 20s, I had an addiction to cocaine and heroin. And I was just, I wanted to figure out what had happened to me. And, you know, I'd been a sort of geeky, straight A student kind of kid. And I just basically got into the field to figure out, you know, how that transition had occurred. And so, you know, I learned a lot of myths along the way um, and also finally found research across multiple disciplines that really allowed me to understand it better. But there's so much propaganda and there's so much just plain nonsense out there about addiction that it's basically turned into a career to debunk it.
0: Well said. And I was just about to ask you. like so i'm i'm very new to the addiction space only came into it after i lost one of my best friends realizing holy smokes even the stuff that i was taught when i was a kid was just factually so inaccurate um. Yeah. So, regarding the dis and misinformation, what do you think the best way that we can combat that stigma is? What do you think we can do to help educate people? Because that's um, it should be so easy, but it's almost like people don't even want to hear the other side of the argument. And once you hear it in two seconds, you're like, oh, everything that I've thought is inaccurate. What do you think is the best way we can combat that misinformation?
1: I mean, I think personal stories help a lot, and I think recognizing that you know the government has had an enormous enormous, like, I don't know if they've ever had a higher budget for propaganda in any other area. Yeah. Um So, you know, I mean, literally, I think um, it was the Clinton administration did a billion dollar, supposedly billion dollar uh, anti-drug media campaign. And a lot of news organizations were like, yes, we will participate in this in a way that they wouldn't have been if it was propaganda about absolutely anything else. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, we're up against that. And we're also up against the fact that our drug policy doesn't make any sense unless you understand its history and the racism and anti-immigrant sentiment that, that made specific drugs illegal. Like people just sort of have this background assumption that there was a scientific process that determined that tobacco should be legal and marijuana should be illegal, which you couldn't have a legitimate science, uh, scientific project that would determine that because you'd have to be um, unscientific to end up with (laughs) that kind of because one of those drugs kills 50% of its regular users and the other one doesn't kill anyone. Um, And that is not the illegal one, Um, you know, or or the illegal one is the one that doesn't kill anyone. So, yeah, it's just, um, uh, you know, it's based on racism, not on science. And once you understand that. You can begin to see why all the stuff that we do that doesn't work continues and continues to be promoted and continues to be rationalized.
0: Right. Well, I was going to say, I follow the DEA because I always find it, um, I actually work for the government, so it's really interesting, um, you know, how... Uh, I'm taught, and I see even the questionnaires that they ask you, it's like basically you're sort of barred from employment with the government if you've used drugs, drugs in the last seven years. And I think about, especially now being in this space, how many brilliant people we're missing out on just from that qualification alone. But I was on Twitter yesterday, and I saw the DEA posted um, something to the uh, links of uh, don't try drugs this summer break. If you try it once, you can get addicted. And I was like, holy moly, like, but old me without knowing the background on that, it would have been like, oh, my God, like, don't use drugs. Like, you know, if you do it one time, but you have a government organization which already has sort of authority telling people that it's it's sort of a scare tactic. And it's really sad to me because, as you said, it's sort of not based on science and just kind of scare tactics and disinformation, which. To me is pretty scary, um, and I was going to ask you. You've you've been writing and reporting on addiction and the science behind it for many years now, um, and I'm sure that there's things that have sort of surprised you over time, especially getting more educated on your uh, on this topic. What is something in the last couple of years that a statistic, whatever it may be, an article that really surprised you that was indeed accurate, but definitely changed your perspective on on this uh, subject?
1: So I was looking at some of the statistics from the um uh, I think it's a Monitoring the Future study, or it might have been the National Household Survey on Drugs. And these are large, you know, thousands of subjects, um, surveys of Americans about their views and their experience of drugs. And I found that in the um, in the 80s and 90s, half of all young adults had tried cocaine at least once.
0: Um, Interesting.
1: Yeah. And that, like, that really shocked me, because obviously, um, when I was selling drugs in the eighties um, and using a lot of them, obviously, um, everybody around me was using it. Um, but, um, you know, I figured, okay, well, I'm in New York and, the, you know, it was like such a huge thing with, uh, 1980s yuppies and preppies and, mm-hmm. the whole, um, thing that was going on was kind of emphasized by cocaine, um, because you kind of couldn't have a better example of like saying greed is okay than the drug cocaine because it just creates this infinitely escalating desire in you as well as this sense of I have total command over everything and I am super good um, which is a terrible combination um, <laughs> anyway but um, but yeah so I was surprised that it was that high um, you know and I mean if you think about that that by itself is just such an illustration of the complete failure of our approach and also an incredible illustration of the fact that no most people do not become addicted because if you had addiction rates to cocaine um that were like 90 percent gets addicted um then we would half of america um the young people in america at that time would have been cocaine addicted which didn't happen exactly and i was gonna say too like something
0: that surprised me was the fact that um, I know in Vietnam, a lot of, you know, war veterans were using heroin, they came back, they might have used it for a bit, but it, it wasn't like there was a heroin epidemic when the war veterans came home from Vietnam. So it's sort of like turning yeah. all these it, things on. It was not, it just wasn't concentrated in veterans. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It was just, it was other people, but it's, it's this idea, right? And, and I, I just think it's so interesting. And something else that really surprised me too, was, I think a lot of people think, including myself before I was educated, that like, you know, opioids are 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 the worst for withdrawals, but the only drug that you can actually die from withdrawals is alcohol. Like yeah. who would have known? I think for a lot of people, including well, myself, actually also
1: benzodiazepines. You can oh, die Benzodiazepines, through. see? For all learning of that whole depressant class of drugs, um, other than opioids, um, because it can cause fatal seizures.
0: There you go. Okay, see, well, I'm learning, but but that's exactly what 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 it is. And I just I I find it so interesting that, you know, um, I think it was in Um, David Pose's book, basically how he talked about that things aren't safer because they're legal. It's just sort of like this roundabout sort of way of going about it. Um, And ultimately, alcohol is the most widely used drug. I know people say alcohol and drugs, when at the same time, alcohol is a drug. drug. And people don't think that it's as dangerous as it is, but millions of people around the world are addicted. And I was looking at a statistic the other day, something that really surprised me. It says 95,000 Americans die a year from source, of yeah. some sort of alcohol, um, you know, use disorder or anything like that. And to me, that's a crazy st- statistic that unless you're educated on it and really, uh, learning about it, that's not something you might know.
1: Well, and also we don't panic about it. Like we have just reached a hundred thousand, um, overdose deaths from, um, uh, illicit substances. And, um, you know, but we've had those high level of alcohol related deaths for years. Um, now the thing is people are going to take substances that alter their consciousness. And how to manage this is a difficult question. Um, Because, okay, so we've tried prohibiting alcohol, that didn't work very well. Um, Anytime you prohibit a very popular substance, you're going to end up with um, gangsterism and corruption, And um, people dying from impure substances, as we are seeing now with all the fentanyl's. Um, So you know what to make of those deaths, and how to figure out you know how to think about that is is a complicated issue.
0: Right? No, one hundred percent. Um, And I know something that I've always been interested in is the way that policy informs how we, you know, treat substance use disorder and addiction in its entirety. Um, And I've been looking a lot into what the administration has been doing. I'm really glad to see that they, you know, the president the other day during the State of the Union speech brought up harm reduction. That was the first time. And people are like, that's a little confession. I'm like, but that's somewhere to me that that gives me a little bit of hope that we're moving in the right direction. But there are so many things that are still wrong policy wise. So excuse me. If there was a single thing that let's say you were president for a day and you could change legislation, what would be sort of your top priority as president? What do you think? What legislation should we change to benefit the addiction community?
1: Well, first, decriminalize all possession of everything. Just don't ever send people to jail for possessing personal use um, amounts of drugs. It does harm and there's zero evidence that it helps. Um, People, if you look at the percent of people who can access treatment within jails and prisons, it's less than the percent of people that access it outside of the system. So if this yeah. is such a great system for getting people into treatment, why is this the case, right? right. Um, you know, we don't diagnose any other condition by having people arrested. Um, so that's one thing. Um, then I would ensure that there is a safe harbor for opioid prescribing for pain patients who have borne the brunt of the crackdown on the prescription opioids with little evidence of benefit to them and enormous evidence of harm to them um is it possible that um you know this massive crackdown uh prevented some kids from being exposed to opioid leftovers that might have had a problem yes that is a possibility but the idea that we would throw away all these people who are currently oftentimes benefiting from these substances in order to prevent something that is extraordinarily difficult to prevent. I mean, the idea that you can prevent addiction by preventing use has simply not been borne out because first of all, teenagers are always going to do dumb things. It's just human nature. And so trying to prevent them from taking any risks at all will result in young adults who don't know how to have a life um and if if you succeed in preventing them from doing that so yes we get it we want to protect people um but the fact is that the best way to protect them is to make sure that the stupid things they do are minimally risky as opposed to maximally risky and that if they do get in trouble with a substance they can access help and we just don't do that we have an absolutely awful system for treatment for teens off, much of which is harmful and actually increases their odds of PTSD and worsens any addictions that were there and creates addictions that weren't there in the first place. Um, so just so much about this is backwards. It's it's like, it's hard it to really know. It know. is. It is hard. Well, I always say
0: the more I know, the more angry I become at, at the system and the injustices that are being done. Um, but I've been learning um, through reading, and you just released an article yesterday in the New York Times talking about how these the opioid rates in terms of prescribing are really what to what they were in the early 90s and what's happening is it's it's really harming the pain community which i never even thought about right the idea that there's people who genuinely need these drugs and they can't access them because of these sort of arbitrary rules or or um too much of that so people are not getting the drugs that they need and i saw in your article it's they're there was a study that it's three and a half to four and a half times as likely that these people might commit suicide because of the pain that
1: they're in. And yeah. these no, it's, it's actually, it's oh, just so nuts, the whole pain thing. And I have been spending the last few years like screaming and trying to get attention to it. Cause if you look at my Twitter feed, it's just a cry of agony from like hundreds of, of people with pain. And yeah. it just, it infuriates me as someone who had an addiction that anybody would use the fact that addiction exists to deny people who need pain medications, their treatment, you know, and it's like the idea, you know, most, we don't want to admit this, but the vast majority of prescription opioid misuse was by people who never had a prescription for the drugs. So 80% of people who misuse prescription opioids never had a prescription for them. And wow. the vast majority of people, and that's a study, that's a statistic from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It's not like, you know, some. Weirdo- yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, so um uh the other point is that fewer than eight percent of pain patients develop a new addiction while being on opioids long term. And short term, the risk really is contra, even though Purdue actually said this, less than one percent. Um, and so whenever I try to actually tell the truth about this, I get called like an evil shill of pharma Um, (laughs) to say, I do not ever take money and have not ever taken money from pharma. But um, the, you know, people want somebody to blame. And there's been such a nice narrative of these greedy companies and horrible doctors just addicted, you know, all these people. In reality, most of the people who got addicted were addicted to leftovers from people's medications that they found in medicine cabinets, often from like acute pain due to like surgery, because every, and this is another irony, most people have a stash of prescription opioids. Why do most people have a stash of prescription opioids? Because they're afraid that if they get in pain, they will not be able to access them. And then they forget that they have this stash because they're not addicted and their kids get into it. And so it's just, you know, um, whole conundrum. Yeah. And, and, but trying to prevent addiction by reducing medical access to patients who need it makes zero sense um, because the mo- the, most of the people who get addicted are seeking drugs in the first place. Um, so most of those people who took those pills out of the medicine cabinets um, were already trying cocaine, amphetamine, obviously marijuana and alcohol, but they were beyond marijuana and alcohol. These are kids who something is going on with that they really wanna alter their consciousness. And these are high risk people. So this is, you know you sort of look at the um, whole opioid situation, you think like, well, how did so many get, how did so many people get addicted if pain patients really aren't the ones who are getting addicted? It's because in a medical setting, when you prescribe in a controlled fashion, Um, And you take a person's history and you know about what's going on with them, your odds of um, spurring a new addiction are just extremely low. Um, The problem is that if you are a recreational user who goes out and tries something like heroin or alcohol or cocaine, you have a 10 to 20 percent chance of becoming addicted, which is way higher than for a medical user. But that's in part because the sample is self-selected it's not like we are randomly in in medical use we're sort of randomly giving to people in um and hopefully slightly uh more controlled than randomly Um, (laughs) trying to control for low risk um but in street use you're selecting for high-risk people because by definition somebody who's willing to try a drug illegally is somebody who is willing to take risks and that characteristic dramatically increases your odds of becoming addicted. So this sort of sample bias ends up looking like, oh my God, these drugs are so addictive. Um, and again, you can also see this with the opioid thing because um, there are so many people who you know, get an opioid for surgery or for you know, dental work or whatever, and they're like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I better not touch it again. That is the majority response of people who get euphoria from opioids. Right. Yeah. I have to say also, it is only a minority of people who get euphoria from opioids. It's about um, a third to a half of of people, depending on how you measure. But there was this amazing study, which I still don't know how they managed to get past an ethics board, where they (laughs) gave a bunch of twins a nice shot of fentanyl. Um, And uh, obviously, it was pharmaceutical fentanyl, and they were safe from overdose because there was naloxone on hand, but there were no overdoses because it was medically controlled. Um, But anyway, they just basically gave them this drug and said, how do you like it? um and only about a third of people like really 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 liked it interesting so it's not
0: just like a hundred percent like my
1: thought even now is like no
0: no and not everyone interesting no
1: i mean in in fact most people's experience of opioids um especially people who have like warm social relationships are like oh this is numbing this like distance from people this like is just like terrible i don't understand why anybody would like this also a lot of people get extreme nausea which also isn't pleasant um but um the people who get euphoria are often people who are just socially isolated for you know because they have mental illness because they have sort of some kind of extreme temperament because um they're traumatized you know there's a lot of reasons but um but the baseline state of a person's nervous system really matters for whether a drug is going to be um feel nice or be like aversive and if you're sort of overstimulated and under socialized um which would sort of describe me (laughs) you would end up um you know finding opioids really delightful um and finding that you're closer to people not like or you feel at least that you could be closer to people than you feel um you know, without um, appropriate um, medication, in my case for depression. Um, so, you know, so it's it's this extraordinarily complicated thing that we want to tell this nice story of a very simple substance, you know, turning people into zombies who have no control. And that's not even true. You know, right. I mean, one of the things that harm reduction teaches us is that if you give people access to clean needles or um, safer smoking supplies, or um, you know, other things that um make them less likely to die or get horrible diseases, um, people will use them and people will tend to try to reduce their risks of harm. Um, and they will also be more likely to get treatment um in that setting, not less. So exactly. all this about like we're enabling people and they have to hit bottom and all this stuff, this is a mythology. Like if I prescribe you heroin. You are not less likely to get into recovery in a traditional sense than if I just leave you alone to be homeless on the street. Um, so if that enabling, if that's not enabling, I don't know what is. <laughs> and um, you know, it just it's just not true. Um, you know, is it possible that there could be somebody on like long term heroin maintenance who might actually do better abstinent, but like doesn't want to go through the withdrawal? there could be such a person, Um, but is it worth the risk of having such a person, having other people die? I don't think so. And that person always, as long as they're alive, still has the chance to make a different choice. Um, And certainly addiction impairs your ability to make good choices. But as we see with needle exchange and naloxone and all this other stuff, it doesn't remove it because you see people slowly making better choices over time and that helps them get into whatever form of recovery whether it is long-term buprenorphine or methadone or long-term heroin um mm-hmm. or abstinence or some kind of like well i'll abstain for this but not for that from that and so it's really um again it's like extremely complicated and we worry about the wrong thing we worry that somebody will like be like stuck in some kind of maintenance sort of situation um, and not living up to their full glorious abstinence potential um, as opposed to worrying about all the people that are dying because we're not providing. Exactly. To me, it's ah, like okay. a very easy thing, right? It's either,
0: you know, and I know there's a lot of groups and I've learned that are very against, uh, you know, medication-assisted treatment. At the end of the day, this is to me, would you rather have your friend and loved one here or not here, right? You want to give the people the best chance of, of living and, and thriving and surviving. And I think everything you're saying is, is completely accurate. And again, just... It just shows what a little bit of education and sort of background in this, how much it can inform our policies to make it better and benefit the addiction community. Um, and on the topic of harm reduction, um, I loved your book, Undoing Drugs. As we said, we talked about it for um, the Albertas Projects Book Club, which was great. Um, that was uh, just a full history for folks who haven't read it of really harm reduction and what it is and all the people involved in that um what was sort of your hope writing this book what would you want people to sort of take away from it for people who might not know harm reduction this is an incredible introduction what was your hope when you were writing this book
1: well i wanted people to understand what harm reduction actually is and that it is a movement that has a history. It's not just a phrase that you can, because like a lot of journalists don't realize that harm reduction isn't just like a a cute way of saying something like, um, you know, oh yeah, we reduce harm, great. Mm No, they they don't think of it as an idea that has a history or an idea that was developed by a very marginalized group of people, people who use drugs, um, to save themselves, along with support from researchers and academics of all types, um, and public health folks, and etc. Um, but um, you know, so I wanted first of all for people to understand, yes, this is an idea; it has a history; it's a movement, and also it completely undercuts all of your beliefs about you know, sort of mistaken beliefs about what addiction is, what drug policy should be, all of this. And, you know, because the thing that makes harm reduction so threatening to current drug policy is that harm reduction says we want to focus first on stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. Um, And when you do that, you have to look at the harm that is inflicted by trying to stop people from getting high. So, once you start to look at the harms associated with policy and those harms count against you in your measures like if you're just measuring oh look we have all these arrests we have all these drug seizures you know like look we're doing great but you're not measuring how many people are dying or um you know how many people are accessing treatment or you know um how is their quality of life um once the goal becomes harm reduction you have to look at the harm you're doing um and if you once you realize that saving people's lives, regardless of whether they do drugs, is a more humane and valuing yep. position, um, then like all the sort of moralism associated with prohibition gets flipped on its head. Because like really, the moral thing to do is be kind to people and save their life, not try to stop them from taking some intoxicant that you don't want them to take.
0: Yeah, like, or being punitive and locking them away and think that's going to solve things.
1: Exactly. And so, I mean, there's just so much in this area that's so ridiculous, like because we now know addiction's defined as compulsive use that continues in the face of negative consequences. So we know, by definition, what's not going to work? Negative consequences, aka <laughs> right? So right. Um, but you know, again, so that's what we've been doing for the last you know one hundred years or more. Um so trying to, you know, sort of help people untangle that. I was able to do, or I attempted to do at least in the book by telling the stories of people who developed these ideas. And obviously because I didn't want to write a 10,000 page book, I had to <laughs> leave a lot of people out. But um, the the idea was to just give people an introduction to the idea through the people and get them to understand how... Um, wonderful and valuable and important people who use drugs can be and the contributions they can make if we allow it instead of just like throwing away all that potential. Um, And I also really wanted to inform people about the racism that underlies um, current drug policy um, because it so informs stigma Um, and, you know, the stigma and the stereotype of people who use drugs is uncomfortably close to the horrible racist stereotypes we have. And that needs to stop. Like, that is not okay. Um, you know, we, the, George Floyd's death was just such a horrific illustration of this because while he was dying, one of the so-called police officers was saying, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. Yeah. Oh. it was such an illustration of like, see, we don't value the lives of people who, you know, you're only valuable if you die um, to show kids that it's bad. Like that is not valuing somebody's life Um, that is using a person as an object, which is like, not, I don't think is a morally okay thing to do. Never. Okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, I mean, that's just like, not good. Um, and, but you see how he was like, kind of excusing his racism by presenting it as being anti-drug. Right. Um, And that's just like, it's just so awful um and i feel like especially as a person who is a white person who benefited from that fact um during my recovery and certainly during my encounter with the criminal prosecution system um i would be remiss if i didn't emphasize that as much as i can um because it is wrong. And this is not me saying we should lock up more white people. This is me saying we should lock up fewer black and brown people.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think what was so cool about the book, and I was just talking about it with one of my friends, um, was in the back, you included like the footnotes for so many great studies and authors and people you should. And, and I think that that's great because it highlights like, okay, th- these are the stories. This is sort of the science, but hey, you can do further research on A, B, and C. Which is what i've been doing over the past couple of months as i've read it trying to find more information and it's always to me it's always nice when someone you know combats you With just a bunch of disinformation, you could be like, actually, this study said that, and really just throw facts in their face. And at the end of the day, I think that that's what it's about: being educated, so you can, you know, be knowledgeable and help people try to understand. Um, And the question that I always get asked is by family and friends uh, of loved ones who are suffering from addiction, Um, and that's obviously incredibly challenging. And I've learned so much. And unfortunately, there's not like a snap of a finger is right way to go about it. I think everyone's recovery journey um, is so different, but. What was what would be your best piece of advice if uh, a family member um, is suffering and you're a mom or you're a brother or sister? How can you best tangibly help those people? Um,
1: kindness and love and support um, and education. So understanding that being cruel to people with addiction doesn't help them is really, really critical. And aligning yourself with that person, understanding that they are not doing this to piss you off. They're doing this because they are in some kind of pain. So how do we find a way for them to treat that pain more effectively um, and not in a way that's destructive to them or others? Now, I always have to add this caveat, which is if somebody is like stealing from you or hurting your family members or hurting you, it is absolutely appropriate to cut that person off. But that is not to fix that person. That is to protect your family. Um, and that is like, boundaries. exactly. And that is like, there's nothing wrong with that. What, what's the wrong thing is cutting people off because you think it will help them because it just as well may kill them. Tough um, love doesn't work. Which is something right. that, you
0: know, it is is something that I think everyone thinks of, right? I was told tough love is the way that it works. Hitting bottom is the way that it works. Obviously that's factually incorrect, but it's scary because that's what's being taught to all these parents and family members and they they just don't know any
1: better. Well, and what's what's been really amazing to me with the reaction to this book and my previous book, Unbroken Brain, is that I've heard from so many parents, um, some of whom have lost their kids, some of whom her kids are still here, um, who um, you know, are just like, oh, thank you for giving me permission to do what I felt was the right thing anyway. You know. Oh yeah. And you know and thank you for like allowing me to understand like what's going on in that person's head in a way that makes sense to me and a way that allows me to act with compassion and also have boundaries for myself yeah. um but it's just like it so broke my heart especially when i hear from families who lost a kid because they told the kid to come off that horrible medication yeah. um and i just i have a very hard time dealing with that um i have a really hard time dealing with people whose kid died in um you know, like I'm thinking of one particular person whose kid died in a rehab where they didn't have naloxone. Like, what is that? Like, that is not okay. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking now of David also, and just like the horrible treatment that he, um, and it just like, yeah, it, it just breaks my heart that like, I always feel like in my life, I try to like solve these like things that seem like simple problems. Like, okay, we're doing the wrong thing. Let's just change and do the right thing. Like, you know, okay, we're doing all this harm. Like, let's just stop doing that harm. Um, And you know, it's like, look, the science is like super clear on this. This is how you do it. Um, you know, um, but it's of course, because of all of these cultural things and all of these cultural misconceptions about it, and basically the political use of drug policy to get elected, as opposed to, to actually help people, um, that's what makes it not a simple problem. (laughs) Um, you know, not like, okay, like, look, we just need to give clean needles and that'll, you know, and I mean, like when you look at the data, like clean needles and access to methadone and buprenorphine stops HIV epidemics. It It, should be that easy. Yeah. They stop those epidemics in their tracks. They, you know, and like take away that stuff, you get another epidemic. Like it's like it's black and white. There's no ambiguity about the data. Um, And and this is why it will get frustrating in this area, because you will see, um, you know, people who are just very attached to, well, this worked for me. So this is the only thing that should be available or, um, you know, and and so, yeah, so sort of over the years, I've developed these kind of shorthands for figuring, you know, reaching people on these things and, and just saying things that are like completely logical, but that absolutely do not make sense if you are indoctrinated in American drug policy. So, yes. you know, if I say, you know, okay, how come we have no other treatment um, for like depression or um, anxiety that involves taking moral inventory and making amends? like Or locking them up for like 60 days without anything phones
0: and thinking, oh, well, that's solved. They're they're better now.
1: Right, right. Um, You know, so sort of, um, you know, like getting people to think, getting people who are giving lip service to the idea that addiction is a disease to think about it the way we actually think about other medical conditions, um, is, you know, it's often, it can be fruitful, (laughs) um, uh, because people just, I mean, and, and I think of this for myself because when I was in treatment, you know, I was just presented the 12 steps are the only thing that worked and just, you know, this is what you need to do. And it was presented by medical authorities as like, this is the thing. And so I just like threw myself into it and like got really, you know, and then I started to read the research and be like, oh, like. Wait a minute, um, you know. And this is not to say that like a lot of people don't get enormous support from 12 steps and from and work special. for some. Yeah, and exactly. Some. But I just think it has no place in the medical system aside from as a support group. Just like your cancer support group is not your oncologist. Exactly. You know? No, i hundred percent. Like woo woo stuff in the cancer support. Yeah, program. yeah. No, like, and I think
0: I not in your treatment. It. Exactly. No, and I I think you raised like a really important point. And it's, it's really interesting coming from a person who, you know, a year ago would never be running a nonprofit about this topic, knew absolutely nothing, but it really was, it was tough. Even when I was presented with the data and the facts to be like, who's lying here, you know, because I'm being taught all this stuff and it's, it takes a, it takes a second to sort of flip your head around and realize everything that you're taught. Um, the common understanding is just, it's wrong. And it's, it's infuriating. And, um, that's, that's what I'm trying to do is reach people like me who are on the teetering side of like, maybe I want to know a little bit more because that's the only way that this stuff is going to change. Right. If, if people who don't really care, who aren't really affected by it, start to care. So, um, I was going to say, Maya, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for all the work that you're doing on drugs. It was one of my favorite books and for coming on. Um, and just being a resource to the community, I think you, I know that you offer really incredible perspective, um, and congrats on being a New York times author now that's pretty damn exciting. So it's really great to be able to track and follow everything you're doing. And I just, I appreciate all the time.
1: Oh, thanks so much. And, and yeah, I just want to say, I'm sorry. I wasn't able to come to the, um, Memorial thing for David. Um, okay. and, um, I meant to write to you and I forgot. Oh,
0: that's okay.
1: <laughs> uh, but um but yeah, I just I'm still a little heartbroken over that. It's just like it's just it's so, so tough.
0: tough. I I literally like I had a conversation with him Tuesday at three o'clock, uh, and he passed away Wednesday like morning. And oh, I had right. a full conversation with him, um, basically just saying like because we were I worked on Capitol Hill and that's sort of my job now. Um and I said, Hey, we gotta start like informing policy and we've been working over the last couple of months and I but I I said, before we even started talking to the hill, we were prepping. I said, listen, how are you? Screw Capitol Hill. Like this stuff we could do in time. Like, I just want to know how you are. And he was so convincing that he was doing okay. And he's like, I really appreciate it. And like, we just had a really good conversation. Um, And, but he, you know, he was saying like, I just don't want people to like, not read my book anymore because I failed. I'm like, no, like you're human to me. That's more of a powerful story that like, you know, addiction is, recovery is not a linear line. It's not like, yep, I'm good, right? It goes back and forth. And I said, it just so like, like, happy. It just makes me sad that he would think that because he should know better. So <laughs> Right, he should know better. And he's such yeah. a smart, yeah. No, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And I just, you know, I've spoken to his family and his wife and they're all just obviously heartbroken, as am I, I can only even imagine what they're dealing with. And I just I just hope he's at peace because he what a special person.
1: I know, um, no, it's just like, it's just, um, but yeah, like it's, it's kind of horrible how all of that mythology about, yeah, you're a failure if you um, slip or, or break out. Right. And
0: he felt that and he felt that. And I was like, no, you are totally
1: fine. Your book is just as important as it was. If not, it's even more important, you know? Right. And I mean, I think like the, just, um, you know, that is such a horrible example of the way um you know that stuff does seep under your skin and does like um get you to th- sort of beat yourself up with something you don't even believe in right um you know because he would have never said that to someone else.
0: yeah, no for sure and he just he he basically he was sort of like questioning like am I the right person to like have these conversations? I'm like yes, you're the right person to have these conversations, you know and I just I thought that that was just him being you know David he's just a h- humble guy and so quick and smart and witty. And it's just like, I would have never imagined, you know, he wouldn't be here to talk about this and all this stuff. And um, the good thing is like we made inroads with his representative's office and I'm still in touch with them. And we're hopefully going to get some legislation passed to make methadone more accessible. Like, and I just, I think about it what I, what I said on the, the visual was like, he's without knowing it, without me knowing it, like he spent his last 24 hours trying to make the world a better place like by informing legislation by speaking for the addiction community like that's just the person that david was
1: yeah yeah no it's it just yeah um and it you know yeah it's uh i just yeah we got to like also like deal with the safe supply issue somehow
0: yeah no i i 100% agree and would have never uh you know it's really interesting so i ha- i have a clearance right now for my job and it is the most ironic thing i don't drink I've never used drugs. Like I have asthma. I'm running a nonprofit, that, you know, <laughs> wanting to support the addiction community. And I am, and I can't even, for my clearance, be in a room with someone who's smoking weed. Like that's how crazy that wow, dichotomy yeah, that I'm in right now. And I, once in the future, I want to make a podcast episode on like the fact that like what I'm told I'm allowed to do and what I'm doing, like even running a nonprofit, like right. I've been questioned by my investigators. Why are you supporting the addiction? Like, it's crazy, the duality of sort of what I'm doing. It's so yeah. sad that I even have to worry about that. But that's how the government's yeah. running. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm hoping at least the marijuana foolishness will proceed. Um, and I'm hoping also that like sort of as that happens, like I think once you see like, oh, look, all these states have legalized and the sky didn't fall and our <laughs> Students didn't suddenly become really stupid as well as psychotic. Um, right. And um, you know, um, like, you know, that is just not um how this works. Um, so when people sort of see that about one substance, you hope that it can start to open their mind about other things. And I, I think like the psychedelic thing is really interesting, but also, you know, again, with all of this stuff, there's always a potential for a backlash. And you have to be really clear about like um. You know that possibility and fighting against it um because um we know this criminalization and harshness does not work um and when we get scared we want to revert to that because it's familiar um and we have to just not either not get scared or if we are scared take a moment and realize that like Oh, we need to like lock them up in order to get them help. No, like that doesn't work. It one doesn't ever work for anything. That's the crazy yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, like you will get some people who say, "Oh, yes, jail saved my life" or whatever. And then when you like when you actually interview them, it's like, "Oh, yeah, I got raped." Oh, yeah, like you know, and it's like then you realize that like um or oh you know I overdosed or had some more horrible right. fight or Experience. physical consequences yeah. or. Anyway, when when you actually talk to them, what they're really saying by that often is just that, um, you know, I had a horrible experience for my own sanity. I need to believe it was meaningful. Um, And, um, you know, this is the way I interpret that. Um, But it's really weird because you can interview people who say, you know, jail was so helpful. And then they tell you this story. And then you can interview people who say, you know, jail didn't help at all. Um, and they tell you exactly the same story. Um, and it's just like, it's about how the person interprets perspective. it It's yeah, yeah, it's exactly
0: trying to like find meaning and, and make it. And that's why this, this topic is, is amazing, but it's so complex. There's so many players that just like, I'm, I'm so like you and I'm, I'm very prone to action and I just. I want to help. And it's aggravating. I feel like the more that I know, the more I've lost in the sauce of all the crazy <laughs> things that are happening. And thank you again. Uh, sure. I know i spent 45 minutes of
1: your time. So I just really appreciate okay. it. That's um, and, okay. And thank you very much for you know the work you're doing.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media at Albertus Project and at
1: www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.